Hi, this is Maya, and I'm co-host of the Cicada Story Slam with Annie Stewart. We um, set the podcast in a small town in Victoria, Australia, called Dalesford, where we have lots of progressive-thinking people, open-minded community. We run the Cicada Story Slam every third Thursday of the month at a local pub, and we have wonderful stories to share from our small town. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming to the Cicada Story Slam. Our theme tonight is courage. Unfortunately, that has not been an amazingly inspiring <laughs> theme. Perhaps Aww. someone's scared of it? I don't know. But we um, have a couple of storytellers tonight. Wanted to just say, because of that low number, that if someone had any kind of story they want to tell, even if it doesn't coincide with courage, we'd love you to share it, because we're all here. And it'd be a shame if we only do two stories, but on the other hand, if we have two stories, I'm sure they're going to be marvelous. I'm just going to do a little intro about the Cicada Story Slam workshop that Annie is going to be doing during Words in Winter, um, which is going to be in about three weeks, <clears throat> the weekend before Words in Winter, because we're opening Words in Winter with a Story Slam on the Friday night. 16th of August. So her workshop is on Saturday the 10th at her house from 1 to 4 for any of those people who want to refine their skills. So I could just call on you and you could tell a story. Um, that'll be at the Story House and Garden on the 10th and it's on Words and Winter website. You can find it. That would be great. Um, and then Words and Winter that Friday will have the cicada like this, which will be, the theme will be life. Um, so... We will podcast this for those of you who haven't been here before. We're not going to Facebook Live it tonight because there are like three people that watch. And we're not going to do that tonight. Um, and we want to thank Anthony for setting up all the sound, Jared for producing the podcasts, and um, Soren for helping and being a good man. And Annie, anything else I need to say? We forgot the bell, so we will be clinking a little glass as the time at five minutes, or four minutes. Stories can be five minutes. We'll clink at four minutes to warn you Thanks. if you go over it. It's not the end of it. Five and six. Five and six. Clink at five and six? Yeah, five and We'll six. clink at five and we'll clink at six. Um, and we're very happy to be here. Thank you all for coming. Beautiful turnout. And who will be going first tonight? Petrus Spronk. Who also, I would like to say, is going to be doing an artist talk at Words in Winter. And he's also going to be doing two shows on the weekend of Words in Winter and the following weekend called The Artist's Revelations. Please check it out on Words in Winter. Thanks, Patrick. Sure. You may be wondering why I've got a book and read out of a book, but I wrote the whole of the book, so it's just a story out of there. It's my adventures in Korea. Then on the night when the theme is courageous, I defy the powers that be by not doing one on courageousness. <laughs> I think that's courageous all by itself if you know who's running this show. So what I'm going to tell you is a story I wrote for the last month. It was the longest night. And I couldn't be here because I was installing my exhibition in Melbourne. 
So that's going to be the story tonight. The hotel had been recommended by a friend of a friend. Something strange about it, though. All the cars in the parking lot of the Hotel Tiffany had hard plastic covers slipped onto their number plates, making both the numbers and the plates invisible. This is a Korean travel story. With some trepidation, I pushed the opaque glass door of the glitzy Tiffany Hotel and entered the lobby. Trepidation because the place looked well outside of my budget. Upon entering, I detected something in strange inside as well. The office window with its familiar small half-moon money exchange opening was opaque, and consequently I couldn't see who I was dealing with. Are you a, uh, have you a room? Yes, replied the invisible man. As a result of this answer, and to my surprise, the price changed to $25. To my surprise, because I considered $30 already cheap, I, collect, I collected my key, free toothbrush, and paste, and found the lift. It was lined with mirrors. Next to the third floor exit, I noticed a well-stocked free video library. The passage to my room was dimly lit, and the walls, in a different kind of expression of interior design, were lined with a deep shade of crimson, gleaming perspex. Very unusual. Each door I passed was closed black. The thought of interesting ambiance occurred to me. I opened the door to my room and got another surprise, especially in relation to the places I had been staying. The room was very light, spacious and clean. It had a huge double bed, an equal-sized flat-screen TV, with a video player. There was also an air conditioning, a computer with an internet connection, water cooler, coffee and tea, a hairdryer, two clean bathrobes, two comfortable chairs plus a table. Oddly enough, there was also an exercising machine, plus a huge mirror on the wall across the bed. On a tray on the sideboard, I found some extras. A box of condoms, a pair of quality nylons, a tube of gel, a variety of body creams. In the bathroom I found a generous spa bath plus a toilet with an electric bidet addition. Curtains totally blacked out. I kicked off my boots, made a coffee and settled on the luxurious bed with some reading material. Next to the bed on the south sideboard I noticed a large block of triangular shaped upholstered foam. How thoughtful I is. How thoughtful I thought. A back support for the reader. But when I lifted it to use it for just that reason, I exposed the chart. It explained the use of the phone block. Besides the backrest for my reading, it also could be used for about 50 lovemaking positions. It was then that I noticed the exercise machine was portrayed on the back of the same chart. This piece of flexible furniture could be set into various positions to support either partner for additional lovemaking possibilities. Another type of exercise machine. I found myself in my, in, in my first well-appointed Korean love hotel. I slept like a baby. In the bed, I, I imagined to be filled with loving energy. In the morning, I booked a room for another night and learned to reason for the, for the number plate covers. 
Apparently, Korean feminists like to photograph the court cars and by embarrassing their owners try to put an end to these extramarital sexual activities. In relation to the numer numerous amount of such places in this particular area of the city, there does not seem to be much change of that. On the way out the next morning, I checked the videos in the passage a little closer. Yep, world porno. That evening, a timid knock on the door. When I opened it, a beautiful Korean lady who expressed a desire to make the one person into a two-person room. Oh my goodness, my time is up. Unfortunately, I have to leave the rest of the longest night up to your imagination. <laughs> first, the other can come second. Thank you, Don. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Now, be before I start, I would do the usual commercial for the show. If any of you have any article <coughs> of uh, embroidery, preserves, cooking, or own fancy fowls or sheep or goats and you would think that the populace of Dalesford might be keen to have a look at them please consider putting something in the Dalesford show this year on the 23rd of November now good story <laughs> now we will start uh, my, my first experience of uh, bravery and courage it was my mother telling me when I was about three or four years old the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now in those days everybody would have known the story of Daniel in the lion's den. He was a Christian who uh, survived being thrown in the lion's den. My mother, I assure you, thought it was because of his faith. And uh, I was told that story. I was far too young to understand Roman cruelty or Christian martyrdom or anything like that. But I certainly knew what a lion was and I wouldn't have wanted to be uh, in, in anywhere with a lion. Uh, and the only thing to defend me was my faith. Didn't even have one. Now, at, from there, you, you kind of, little boys growing up in the late 40s were constantly told, be brave and be a man, you know. And I can remember my mother telling me this at the stage where she was calling me a little manny penny, so I wasn't very big, and she was telling me to be brave. And I kind of learnt that there was a problem with this bravery and courage it's no use being brave unless you're frightened, right? How can you... It wasn't brave of me and my young sister to... my younger sister to sit on uh, the top of the local footbridge 
And we used to, in the summertime, we'd spend hours sitting up and from the creek to the bottom of the bridge was higher than that ceiling. The bridge was about two metres higher on top of that. We used to sit on top of it with our pine cones. You could pull the pine nut out, crack the nut open on the steel girder that we were sitting on on the top of the bridge and eat them like, like a monkey. And although nowadays, of course, you make pesto out of it. But uh, we would sit up there. We didn't think we were brave. And yet, uh, oh, when I was about 40, I had a year back home and uh, I can used to walk my dog past the bridge. And I said, did I ever sit up there, you know, terrifying. So, and and now if I was to walk on top of that bridge, it would be brave to the point of foolhardy. So there's a there's courage and courage. I never certainly didn't think I was brave to sit on top of a bridge when I was eight years old, six years old, five years old. Now it looks quite terrifying. So, but. I don't think it was courageous because how how can it be courageous if you don't even think about it? You're not frightened. You've got to be frightened. And uh, in in my family, I knew that there was something frightening about Uncle Fred who died at Changi because whenever. Uh, he was mentioned. My father used to kind of tell us to stop talking about that. The old man was a bit tense about talking about Fred. So we thought that somebody who died at Changi must have been pretty brave, you know. And but against that, I had to think. Now, I feel pretty flaming brave when I walk past the Brogans fence three doors up from me they had their horse paddock had a corrugated iron uh, fence and their whopping big mongrels used to run up and down behind the fence barking at me every time I went past I thought that was brave right but I knew it wasn't like Uncle Fred you, you understand that there is so there's bravery and bravery which you kind of understand and I I, my father was brave enough. I can remember one day, again, something you wouldn't understand perhaps these days, but the baker used to have a cart, four-wheel cart, full of bread, of course. Uh, one day, his horse bolted and came racing down our street, the baker yelling out as, as we could see him coming, and... Uh, my father grabs his coat, throws it over the horse's head, and the horse is bolting down the street with my father hanging over the horse's head with his coat covering the horse's eyes. The horses aren't very smart, and after a few 50, 60, 100 metres, the poor old horse stopped, confused, no doubt, and that was brave enough for me. That was brave enough until I was 19. And that you might remember, when I turned 19, they sent me a letter from the government 
uh, and suddenly you've got to think about this other bravery that you've only seen on pictures on television or listened to on the radio and that's the bravery that means something somebody is going to shoot at you or just as brave for me you're supposed to shoot back at them and that's what happened to my generation fortunately i i was medically unsatisfactory thank thank praise the lord but i had to think about getting shot at and uh, one of my great mates um, was went fitter than I was. He was shot at in a, in one of the rubber plantations that the Australians were guarding. He was a guy. He was a ruckman, so he's about six foot three, sixteen stone. Somebody let a few shots up. Pop, pop, pop. He said. He was hiding behind a rubber tree about that big. Said. Took him about five minutes before he was game enough to breathe again uh, and uh, kind of breathed out, looked around. Two of his mates, he said there was none of him showing either side of the rubber tree. When he looked around after five minutes, two of his mates were hiding behind him. <laughs> so that that's the courage that I... Uh, understand really happens uh, I had I had another bit on this and but I am winding up it must be five minutes thank you Don and thanks for the information about the show um, on that note I'm just going to try on the note of what you were talking about, about courage, I just want to say that uh, Kevin Childs, who should be here, actually, I don't know where Kevin is, who um, curates Words in Winter with me, has been writing a book on the Vietnam War, on the letters of the soldiers who participated, who are Australian, and he'll be doing a in-conversation about the book at Words in Winter on, on Saturday the 17th, but he asked Ellis Ebel, who is a local, Ebel, Ellis Ebel or Ebel, wonderful um, actor and director, if he would read some of the letters that are in Kevin's book. And Ellis said, oh, I really don't have time. He, he directs at the Williamstown Theater and he's busy. But okay, send it to me and I'll just have a look and we'll see. This was just a couple of weeks ago. And Kevin sent him one letter as a sample. And Ellis read it. And Ellis's partner, Frank, read it, partner of over 50 years, right? Something, you know, they've been together forever. And it turns out the letter that Kevin sent, the man who wrote that, or the story, um, he and Frank had the same position in Vietnam a month apart from each other. So I think this guy relieved Frank of his duty or Frank relieved him. To which Ellis replied, I will definitely do the reading with you, Kevin. But it was an uncanny... I didn't tell it well enough. Kevin tells it so good, you get chills up your spine. And it's a free event, and I encourage everyone to come. I think it's going to be great. Um, now we have, we've, we, so we're getting people to tell stories, which is great. So who's the third, Annie? Rodney Baker. Bravo, Rodney. 
Yeah, you, uh, you need a bit of lift, don't you? We'll see how we go. Well, I'm a bit new to this, but anyway, we'll see how we go. Many, many moons ago, as most of you people may know, I did and went through cancer as a young person. And that was a bit of a shock and a bit of a, a thing at 22 years of age to be told that you have cancer and you've got three years to live if you don't do anything about it. So that was, that's the first thing, first thing. So that happened and then it was like, okay, where do we go to from here? So me being me, put all my effort, soul and everything into trying to beat that and go through the process and the situation at the time, not knowing what may happen, what to do, and relying on the people around me to, hopefully, they knew better than what I did. So, whatever you do, you don't ever take your mother with you to a doctor's appointment. That didn't go very well. Here she is, she's really upset, crying. My partner at the time, we'd been together six months, and she's upset, and I'm there saying, well, okay, we've got this problem, what are we going to do about it? And they're like, what do you mean? And I say, well, what are we going to do about it? We can't sit here and do nothing. So they said, okay, so within three weeks, we went from being at work, working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, to being on a hospital bed, being operated on, to find out exactly how we can fix it. And then after that, we went on to chemotherapy, which chemo is not very well. It's not very good for people at all. I didn't take it very well, and the life was an unknown. So in that time, we had a lot of things. We had, we just started to build a house. We had no children, which at the time was good, but all these things were thrown in our face that we didn't know what we were gonna do. So my current story is that I portrayed and got the courage together to listen to the doctors, which he wasn't a very nice doctor in the end. He treated us really badly and was un very unpleasant. But he kept me alive and that was probably one of the most hardest times of my life as such, as in to have that and be knocked down from healthy what not to have that happen and then the courage to try and get through that day by day just waking up in the morning and dealing with it and as we went along it got worse and it got pretty bad but we developed that I started making a list I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that and to be able to do that was the biggest thing that kept me alive and to be able to beat it, as in, we set goals and we got through the cancer. I'll never forget, my grandmother was really sick at the time and in hospital, and I'll never forget that I went in and told her about six, about four months into the into chemotherapy, I went in and I told my grandma on the hospital bed that they said that it's all clear, the cancer's gone, but we've still got another two to three months of chemo left. <coughs> but I should be all right. And after that, about three days later, she passed away, which I think at that time, she was waiting for the news to find that I was gonna be okay. So then we beat that, and then it was like, right, okay, we still couldn't work, 
We had no money. We relied heavily on everyone else because other people didn't help. So we relied heavily on family to get us through, which they did. And when we got through, then we still had no house to live in because we were living with my partner's parents at the time because she was looking after me. We got enough energy, enough power to, right, we're through it, we've beaten it, we're going we're gonna to move forward. So then we finished the house and we moved in. And then after that, we were told that we probably wouldn't be able to have children. So that was another thing that we had to deal with as well. But then when one come back, and then one come Oscar, so that's, that was pretty good. But the courage to have anyone that is sick or anything like that to just get out of bed in the morning and keep doing what they want to do and what they're passionate about is the biggest thing to make life easy that, that you can do. It's really hard to do, and I always say this to people now, if you don't have a passion and you don't like your, the way you live, change. You must take the steps to change and think outside the box and move forward. And that's the biggest, to me, that's the biggest thing that someone can do is to get outside and take a step in a different pathway, a different direction to something that they want to do or believe that they can do, but they're held back by not thinking, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. You must get the courage and the energy to force yourself to do it. Otherwise, it just, life's not all about just staying in one thing. It's about trying new things, trying different things to better yourself. Or even if it's not better yourself, it's just to make yourself feel better with what you do in life. Because we don't know what's around the corner. They can change very, very quickly. And that's it. Thank you, Rodney Baker. Fantastic story. And you have a beautiful family. We're very happy you made it. And we look forward to more stories. Um, Annie, sorry, I didn't see who the next person is going to be. Nick Rittar. All the way from Hepburn Springs. Thank you, Nick. We look forward to your story of courage. Hi, Rob. Um, I haven't prepared this story, so it's, it's off the cuff. Uh, it's about a friend of mine who's just about the bravest, most courageous person I've ever met. And this, the story starts way back in, wow, 1942. And it was the middle of World War Two, or the start of World War Two, And Australia was just getting to the point where it was potentially under attack and the mini-subs had come into Sydney Harbour, the Japanese mini-subs. And while they were there, a woman gave birth in Mortdale in southern Sydney. And forevermore, June, the girl who was born that day, everyone talked about her being delivered by the Japanese mini-subs. She had to be pretty brave because she had five brothers and five sisters living in a, a pretty downtrodden two-bedroom, three-bedroom house in Mortdale in southern Sydney. Dad was a bookmaker. 
and a mum was looking after 11 kids. And she continued to show, you know, strength and courage as she, she grew up. And when she was about 19, she fell in love with a guy from Western Sydney, a wog, a guy from the Czech Republic. And he, she was brave because his mum did not want anything to do, or him to have anything to do with this young white girl from a rough side of Sydney. But she married him anyway, and he went off to join the Navy, and she stayed home. And in those breaks when he came back each time, she fell pregnant each time, and had two girls. And then in 1973, during the OPEC oil crisis, when there were, it was petrol rationing, and people couldn't get fuel for their cars, she gave birth to her third child in the middle of that. And from down at Nowra on the south coast of New South Wales to the hospital in Sutherland, the ambulance that carried her took 90 minutes in 1973. And that's about uh, over 200 kilometres that they did on windy roads to get her to hospital in time because she uh, needed some surgery to give birth to me because June's my mum. And all my life, she's shown this incredible courage to do things which are just completely out of the ordinary. When my dad eventually got out of the Navy, he was working different jobs and, and mum wasn't particularly happy about these different jobs as sandblasters and private detective and all kinds of crazy, crazy work that he had. And she saw an ad in the newspaper in the Sydney Morning Herald and it was an ad for a couple to take on the management of a national park in western New South Wales. 50,000 hectares of land that had been the largest sheep station in Australia outside of Queensland. And she answered the ad and applied for my dad and her and my two sisters and me to take over the management of this national park. And they won the contract. And in 1975, we as a family moved out to this incredibly remote place, a couple of hours from a town of a thousand people, um, where there was nobody else out there but mum, dad, and me and my, t my two sisters. And we lived out there, we got out there, and arrived, and immediately got flooded in for three months. Couldn't, couldn't leave the place at all, but mum, mum took it in a stride the entire time. My sister ran into the end of a plate glass window and ended up being in hospital and it was, I got lost in grass that was six foot uh, tall because there'd been nobody living on the National Park for more than 30 years. It had been a, a sheep station that had been left to fall to bits. Mum took it in a stride the entire time, managed the National Park with my dad, raised three kids, never a complaint. She's a quiet kind of person and her courage isn't necessarily that obvious. But all through my childhood, my dad's crazy schemes of different business ideas and the like, mum always supported him and was prepared to take it on. Now she's in her mid-70s. They've retired to a little 25-acre place with a couple of hundred sheep and 
you know, the normal kind of farming thing that farming people do. About 10 years ago, she got diagnosed with Parkinson's. She doesn't have the tremors, and she can still get around okay. She's just getting smaller, smaller and smaller. But her bravery still is coming to the fore, you know. She didn't want to let Parkinson's be something that beat her or reduced her too much. So she started a local chapter of the Parkinson's Sufferers Association and started helping people who to come to terms with the fact that they were getting older and having challenges from these diseases, this disease. And now she's the uh, an Australian, one of the Australian representatives at the International Parkinson's Conference every two years. And the other day we got a postcard from her in Kyoto, Japan, where she is now um, coordinating uh, 1,000 people coming to the Parkinson's Conference and setting them up with buddies in Japan so that they can uh, meet somebody who is a fellow Parkinson sufferer, but also someone who speaks the language. So I just wanted to tell an off-the-cuff story about the courage of my mum. She's still going strong, and she's still trying to make a change in the world, even though, you know, it's always been hard. Beautiful story, Nick. Thank you for sharing that. Great. Wonderful. Um, I got nothing. I'm a blank. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Okay, Mika. Mika Davis. Thank you. talk about I I um is this does this sound okay? Um return to an old workplace of mine that at the start of last year and that I've been with an organization for many years on and off and start of last year I returned to a site on Brunswick in Brunswick on quite a busy road. Um, and if the officers are here, there's a side street next to the officers. And on the side street, there's a man who has always been there for years and years and years. It's his purpose in his day, from Monday to Friday. And he goes somewhere at night, but during the day, that's his spot. And sometimes he has... I'll talk about that, but... I've known that for a long time because I've been inside on often for for a while. Anyway, when I returned at the start of last year, um, I'd walk past him to get to the supermarket or lunch breaks, and every time I walked past him, um, I would cop really, really awful racist language from him, and it happened every single time I walked past, and I'd kind of just pretend it wasn't happening, uh, just kind of ignore, put my head down, just kind of walk fast and go, I can't, just letting it go. And then after a while, I was like, okay, now I'm crossing the street and I'm just, I don't actually know what to do. It's not feeling good. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I had to reflect on what it, how it was that I was going to, uh, you know, deal with it because 
he had really bad days, you know. Sometimes the police would get called, sometimes he was having a really great day and, um, you know, he's got a person there that none of us can see that he speaks to regularly. Um, he has really rough times, he has really good times. So all this sort of stuff goes through my mind and go, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to deal with the fact that every time I walk past him, there's this language. And if anybody who's ex here has experienced racism, it's not just in the words, it's the expression on people's faces, yeah? Um, it's a really, really awful experience. So I thought about it after a few months. I went, oh, I'm here for a long time. I don't know what I'm, I'm going to have to deal with it. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to smile at him next time I walk past him. Look at him in the eye and smile. And there's some of you who know me and know that I can't even smile into a camera, let alone somebody who's, been, who's harmful to me. But I decided next time I did it, and I did it, I just looked him in the eye before he had a chance to say anything, smiled and kept going. And then the next time I walked past him, because if I go back the other way, I couldn't see him anyway, um, the next day, it was like we were best mates. And he was like, how's your day going? You're off to get your coffee, lovely day, it's good to see you. And after that smile, everything changed. And incredible warmth, incredible connection, and from there we have had many, many chats. He's an extremely, um, extremely intelligent person who has a wealth of knowledge, and um, we, you know, occasionally get him coffee. You know, it's different now, obviously. And so, anyway, I was in my car to leave work this Monday, and it was on his side street, and I got in my car. And he was coming up. He's got a fairly significant disability, sort of hobbling up. Um, somebody was going to drive him back to where he goes at night. And I just went down the window and said, G'day, and how's he doing? And he said, I'm really, really awful today. In fact, today I don't want to live anymore. Um, I don't want to be on this world anymore. It's, a, it's an awful time. And I said, so... Is this, I'm really sorry to hear that, is that something that happens regularly or is, it, is this today's particularly bad day or is it a pattern? And he said, no, well, actually, I've got really, really bad depression and I've got really bad anxiety. And, but actually, you've been incredibly kind to me and really helpful to me. And when I first met you, I was awful to you. And I said horrible things and I'm really, really sorry. And I just sort of sat there and went, I really appreciate you saying that. And when I think about courage, some people might say it's courageous to smile at somebody who's hurting you. But I actually think it's incredibly courageous for any of you here who have had a dark day, like really understand what it is to have a dark day where you don't want to live anymore. If you, on that day, say to somebody else, become vulnerable and say, what I did to you was awful and I, I'm sorry, that to me is courage. Very, very good story, Mika. I know, I know something about that story from before from over months ago, so to hear that that happened on Monday is amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Um, 
Uh, Toby, I think, is going to go now. Toby? Is that okay? Sorry. No energy. Anything? Courage. I'm going to draw a distinction that probably no dictionary in the world would agree with between courage and bravery. Um, just for the sake of this story, I always talk to my children and I say, um, I want you, you know, you need to be brave. That doesn't mean fearless. It means that when you have fear, you find a way to do it anyway. That's what bravery is. It's not being fearless. And, and so it's okay to be afraid. And if you need help to do something, come and ask for it. And that's a brave thing to do. And that's what you've got to do in this world or else you'll be crippled by fear for your whole life. But courage to me is a different thing. Um, that, that, the structure of that word around core, around heart, you know, it's a French word, it means to, to have heart. I think of that as more of a lifelong practice or a, life, a daily way of being rather than the overcoming of a particular situation. When I think of a person who is courageous, I think of a person who lives that way constantly and who just has that in them. Um, I, I don't particularly think of me that way, uh, quite honestly, because there's a lot of things I run away from and a lot of things I don't say and I don't do, and I'm, I, I, don't, I wouldn't put myself in that category. But I've been fortunate to know several people, uh, well, quite a few actually, who I would call courageous people. And... Um, I suppose the, <laughs> inevitably, the ones who come to mind most are, as we've seen with a few of the stories here tonight, the, the mothers in my life. Um, I have three children by two different women, and I have the example of my own mother, um, and those are of my mother-in-law, and they're all courageous people in their different way, and, and becoming a mother seems to me so courageous not so much because of the physical you know, difficulties involved and everything, but because the attachment to something as fragile as a child and the possibility of the loss and the pain that you take on. And that's, that applies to both parents, of course, but I think it's a more intimate connection, perhaps in some ways, for a mother. I, I don't know. I've never been one. But I, I'm always struck by the incredible courage of making that your life, of, of making your life building your life around something that could be snatched away, and in some people's lives is snatched away in an instant. Um, it was <laughs> amazes me and gives me genuine hope for humanity that people go on doing it. I just think, how irrational, how insane, how wonderful um, that people do it, and I adore it. I really do. I, I, I admire it and I adore it. But the real example I always run back to is somebody I lost when I was 19, my mother. She was young. She was only 47. Um, and she was a little person. I've talked about her before on these nights a bit because she remains in many ways, you know, my, my guru uh, in life. And she was absolutely courageous. She was a little person and she suffered a bit. You know, my father could be violent and there have been other things that had gone on in her life. Um, and I guess where I draw a difference between her courage and my own limitations is that she wasn't afraid to be unpopular. She wasn't afraid to be disliked. She wasn't afraid to say things that people didn't want to hear. Um, and I have a little bit of that, not so much afraid. I'll, I just pick my fights very carefully, unless I'm drunk, in which case, you know, <laughs> take us all on, you know? But, um, 
But my mother just lived her values and spoke her values and didn't know any other way. Genuinely, I don't think, knew any other way to be. She just didn't have dissimulation in her character. Uh, and I remember when we arrived in this town at the start of 1970, it was a very different town um, and had some really positive things and some really negative things. And one of the negative things was that a lot of very bad things went on and a lot of people knew about them and people didn't talk about them. They really didn't. Rape, incest, bashings, killings. That all happened in Dunstan. I mean, I can tell you stories about all those things. It's not an exaggeration. They're all things that happened in this town. And a lot of people knew about them. A lot of people said nothing. And there were women in this town, occasionally you'd see them walking down the street with a big black eye. More than once, you'd see the same person. Everyone knew, no one said anything. But my mother couldn't help herself. <laughs> um, she was a strong, early second wave feminist. She was reading De Beauvoir in the 50s and stuff, and um, you know, before Germain Greer and all that stuff. And so she believed in those values. And her father, as I've said before, grew up in London, just around the corner from the Pankhursts. And so, although he was quite a conservative man, he really believed in the decency of human equality. And so she'd grown up with that from her father as well as from her own heart. And I remember her sometimes walking up to people in the early 70s in this very conservative, really 1950s town, to women in this town. And I can still remember, you know, because I'd be with her when I was like seven or eight, and everybody's gasps. She'd walk up to these women and she'd say things like, I hear your husband beats you. You should come around to my house, and we'll have a cup of tea, and we'll talk about it. And these people, <gasps> you're horror, and they pull away, you know. And in this town, that was something you just didn't do. But then, two or three weeks later, these women just sort of run away in horror and looked at her. I'd come home from school, and they'd be there in the lounge room, having a cup of tea with her, because they had nowhere else to go, and because nobody else had spoken to them, they were invisible. And um, I just want to end on a slightly happier note in relation to this. One of my favourite stories about my mother's courage, is that when she arrived in this town, she was sort of liberated and young and attractive, and yeah, she didn't wear a bra, you know, in this uh, very hung up town in some ways. I remember this, where, when I was about eight or nine, we were opposite the primary school, there was a little tuck shop there then, walking up the street, and this sort of matron <laughs> came up in this quite sort of stout lady with her hands up here, came up to my mother and sort of stepped in front of her, she was walking up the street so that she couldn't go past, my mother said, oh, hello. This woman said, Mrs. Sign, we know what you're here for. And my mother said, oh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I expect some kind of Buddhist joke from her at that point, but she said, oh, do you? Um, what's that? She said, we know that you're here for our men. And, <laughs> and this woman would have been married to some, you know, brill-creamed non-entity, some RSL type that my mother would have had zero interest in whatsoever. And my mother kind of stood there. I could see her face working. She didn't know. She was kind of repressing a laugh. She said, oh. Is that why I'm here? She said, yes. And then this woman went back and spat in my mother's face. And it's a big gob of spit. You could see it. And, ran down. and I'm standing there holding her hand. And I remember being shocked. I'm thinking, is she going to pull out a knife and stab this woman? What's she, is she going to kill this woman? And I only kind of stood there for a minute and then <laughs> looked at it. And then she leaned back and she just burst out laughing, just roaring with laughter. And she put her hand on the woman's shoulder and said, there, there, dear. You'll get over it. And we kept walking. She stepped around and walked off up the street. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks. 
Toby. I love your stories about your mother. I feel like I know her. And she's really awesome. Um, I think I heard that Zoran is telling a story. Was that correct, Danny? Yeah. Again, like Nick Rita, this is just off the cuff. You know, the moment gets you and you, you want to tell a story. Um, about courage. Uh, I, you know, when you re reflect on, on, on your life and you go back, you know, you, you see courage. But at that time in your life, it's, you, it's probably not courage. It's just something that you, you do. Uh, Mum and Dad, uh, when I was uh, 19 years of age, just finished high school and a year of university. Mum and Dad had my life planned out for me in the northern suburbs. I'm going to have a good job. I'm going to marry the girl. All my friends play soccer. You're going to be a star kid. Listen to us. So I went out and bought a ticket to Central America the next day. <laughs> And uh, went to Central America, to El Salvador, Nicaragua and stuff to meet the uh, fighters of the revolution because I thought that's what they want me to do, right? Um, so I bought this ticket and I left it on my table after that conversation and I didn't have courage to present it to them to say that I'm heading off. I just waited until I found it. And mum came up to me and she said, Zara, what's this on your table? I said, look, it's a ticket. She says, I said, it's a ticket. It's a one-way ticket, isn't it? I said, yes, it's a one-way ticket. Central America, I said, who's been there? Sorry, who's been there? Sorry, a bit nervous. I said, uh, it doesn't matter who's been there. I'm going there, mum. I'm representing the family and what I think I need to do. Um, so I ended up flying to uh, the States and catching a train, and catching a bus, and going to Tegucigalpa, the murder capital of the world, and catching another bus with chickens in potholes. Took me nine hours, and I found this coastal beach, and I walked down this track, and uh, uh, um, there's a, one of my famous uh, writers, Bruce Chapman, writes a book called What Am I Doing Here? And I felt like him. I was like, what am I doing in this tribe of the Garifuna tribe people, a black tribe from Africa. And I was living with them in this tribe. And there was only women around. I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know where the men went. I think they were fishing or something happened to them. They just disappeared. They're just big, black, beautiful women. And they'd walk past and look at me and just spit. And I thought, oh, how beautiful is that? It's just, you know, there was something beautiful about this big, black woman that just looked and just showered outside and stuff and uh, the thing was in this little tribe of huts that I was in there was a, a an abuelita, a grandmother who everyone was very afraid of. She was about 100 years old I reckon. She was really old and she'd walk with a cane here and there you know just getting around and there was a sandy floor and I was living in a hut and I started working with the one man that was there, Massimo, had a machete, and he said, you come work in the fields with me. And my first few days, I went out and worked in the machete. I was cutting canes down, working with the machete, really sweating, let go of the thing, and it just 
I was like, I think I'm going to kill somebody on my first week here, but I didn't. And I walked back, and this other leaper, the kids were all scared of her. They were like seven, eight, nine-year-old kids, and in the tribe, they'd be very tentative. And she hit with this cane, like really, without people seeing her. And the kids would just jump like chickens being hit, you know. They would like just jump around. And I thought, okay, I've been courageous before, but what can I do to sort of um, deal with this matriarch of this village, you know, to, for her to accept me and to think that I'm not here just, I'm here to help or just just to, you know, be part of it. And uh, I walked to the market, it took me ages, and I bought a melon, and I bought two melons, one for me and one f for her, and I walked past her, she was sitting down, and I presented this melon to her, and out of nowhere she had a knife and she just pulled it out and cut it open and there was just melon just flew out of her mouth and it was all gone, it was just like spit. And she just went, mm, and I went, hmm, back. <laughs> okay, she's eating the melon, it was unbelievable. And I walked back to my cabin and I'm sitting there and uh, the kids, I can hear, they're usually really loud but all of a sudden there was a silence around and I thought, something's happening. There's movement out there. And there was a knock on the door. And I go to the door, it's like the barn doors, you know, the horse, you know, looks out. There was a knock on the side. And there's Abuelita looking at me. And I'm looking deep into her nostrils, you small black woman, you know. Looking into her black nostrils and her silver eyes. And she goes, huh? And I'm like that. And she presented a cooked fish that she had cooked for me. And she passed it to me, and I took it, and the kids just rejoiced. And then, well, after that little moment, Abuelita sort of said to everyone, this guy's okay, he can eat with us and be with us. And I thought to myself, if I wasn't courageous on that day that I bought my ticket, I would have never have met my most formidable opponent, Abuelita. <laughs> you've ever told that story. <laughs> I love that. That's really, that was, that was the best one. Did you know it? I've heard it. Okay. I've been, we've been married 20 years, I've heard it. But that was the most succinct, because the only thing he left out was that there were no men in this village. Oh, you said that, sorry. Do we have some? We need to discuss it. Can you help me? Yes, I'll start okay, it can, I just, but can I just say one little thing? Because I got all this energy back after Rodney and Nick and Mika and everybody's story. Um, everybody's story. Petrus, Don. I've been so tired because I've been doing this crazy words of winter thing and I just am zapped of energy. And this week, and because it's winter, I've been feeling so down, and like, what am I doing in this little town, and this town's too small for me, and it sucks, and everybody's white, and there's no diversity, I mean, there's some diversity. I'm just saying, I was feeling like down. And, and, because also the thing about words in winter is that everybody, it's a small town, everybody wants to change everything, and, and, 
and you see everybody on the street and they're your friends, so you want to make everybody happy with what you've done. So it's all about pleasing everybody. Anyway, well, I'm thinking about all this, I'm just thinking, I'm crazy, I can't live in this town, it's too small. How can I live in this cold place? How can I live in this cold place? Here, here. <laughs> and, and I can't take it anymore. <laughs> and I think I was just saying to Zorn today, like, we should definitely go to uh. Italy or New York or something. Yeah. But I just want to say, and Toby, your story. And then I come here, and I'm like sad because there's not enough people telling stories. Petrus does a marvelous story. Don does a marvelous story. And everybody else. And then my heart feels full because everybody... And it's like momentum it builds and it gets bigger and better. And it reminds me why I am in this town and love it a lot. Aww. So thank you. I love you guys. And now we're going to Not to mention the fact that when she arrived, the co-host said, oh, I'm flying off tomorrow morning. I'm really nervous. Would you like me to do it? Yeah, yeah, you do it today. You do it today. So thank you so much for taking over, Maya. And... A round of applause because we have heard a little bit about her story in Words and Winter, but being involved with it, we know what an onerous task it is. So please put your hands together. Please make sure you attend the events because that's the idea of it, community events, coming out, listening. And um, we've got to think, we decided we wanted to have it as a competition again for no other reason than just to sort of pin it down. And tonight's theme came from a famous saying from Adam Lindsay Gordon. And my mother was such a literary person, we shared so many sayings that we like to get in things. But life is naught but froth and bubble, but two things stand like stone. Kindness in another's trouble and courage in your own. So that was our sort of theme tonight, and we just did range over so many wonderful stories. As I mentioned to Nick down the back, my mother too was born in June, and my mother was June as well, <laughs> and a little diminutive person. But the range of stories we had to, you know, from your travels, the longest night. Can you cut that off a little bit short, though? <laughs> the, the travels to Vietnam. You know, everybody's story, a different story of courage was really a bit remarkable. But I do have a judge in the crowd, and she thought perhaps tonight we'd like to award it to Rodney, who told us of his battle with cancer. So I fly off very early tomorrow. I'm off to storytelling gig in California and taking a couple of slam stories over there as well as some uh, different things. As I was mentioning to Miriam and Jonathan, I found out California comes from an old romance no novel written by a Spaniard in the 1500s. And Califia was a famous goddess with dark skin and a band of Amazonian followers that, that battled only with golden weapons. I can't wait to get to California. <laughs> but don't forget, on the 10th of August, in the weekend before the Words in Winter, there's going to be a storytelling workshop at my place because we really want to have heaps of people having a go on the launch night. So we'd love people to get their story together. Life is a theme, which means you could probably go anywhere you like. 
Huge thank you to Maya once again and over here to Anthony. And thank you for the audience coming along. Thank you. Hi, I'm Zara, and you're listening to the Cicada Story Slam. The Cicada Story Slam is in a country town in Victoria named Dalsford. And it may be a small place, but the community and people are great. And I, if I don't say so myself, the stories are even better. I would like to acknowledge Annie Stewart and Maya Irel who made all this possible. And of course, everyone who helps out behind the scenes and you for listening. If you have a wild story and you're a part of our community, please feel free to come to the Cicada Story Slam and share your amazing stories, because we'd love to hear them. And the story takes you there Don't know why You don't know where But the story takes you Take refuge from the gloom Pellegrini's Cafe 8 a.m. Where the postcard's old and warm Their edges frayed and torn Paint pictures of a time way back when And the story takes Don't know where, but the story takes you there. handed down stories passed around everybody's got a story they can tell stories to make sense in this old world's defense just make sure you say it well and the story takes you Don't know where Are you strong enough To take that down And let the story take Takes you Let the storm
Let the story take you there